know, sometimes people just blend in a little bit. As I got no thing here, so guess what we'll do? We'll use the old hand. Yeah, that's right. Sometimes people blend in. We got Where's Waldo. I almost put a picture of Where's Waldo up. It looks like camouflage when you throw it up there, 1024 by 768. It just looks like camouflage. And I have Waldo found, but I don't put him up there because I wanted to do a little something different. But we understand that concept of where's Waldo. He fits in with everybody else, and they've done that kind of intentionally, right? They've given him the striped shirt, and then they put other striped shirts in there, but his distinction is his nose and his hat and all that kind of good stuff. And we're looking for Waldo because he doesn't stand out. A lot of times, people don't stand out. They look like that right there. Where everyone is just in a line, they're in a nice orderly fashion, everybody looks the same, and then somebody stands out. And you realize, hold on now, this guy or this girl, they're just a little bit different than everyone else. In fact, you might say this person is a good bit different than everyone else, right? Until you realize, wow, that person is remarkable. That person is really different than everybody else. They aren't just a little bit different. They are exponentially different than everybody else that is around The reason I choose the word remarkable is because we use that. Is that when something is noteworthy, or something or someone is worth bringing up again, say, man, that's remarkable. Because it's completely unexpected. It's not what you would normally think of, and it stands out. The biblical word for that is what Bill just read for us in Mark chapter 6 and verse 6 where Jesus could not perform many miracles in their city because of their unbelief. And here's what He did. And He marveled at their unbelief. The word is marvel. Ed used the word marvel this morning in his opening prayer, didn't he? We marvel at the creation that God has made. And what that means is it is noteworthy. It stands out. It is something to think about. And tonight, we're going to talk about three people, or three instances, that are considered to be remarkable. Okay? We're good on that. Remarkable. Alright, here you go. I want you to go with me to Luke chapter 7. There are plenty of times that the gospel writers, they tell us something. And they usually tell it a little differently. Luke 7 is one of those cases where we have it recorded in Matthew chapter 8, and we have it recorded in Luke chapter 7. And tonight, all three of these examples that I'm going to use are in multiple Gospels. It is not a one story that happens in one Gospel, but it is something that at least two gospel writers decided was noteworthy enough 
to write it down and use the term wonder, marvel, or remarkable. Okay, so that's Luke chapter 7 and verse 9. You'll know this story, and we'll read it very briefly here. It's about the centurion. He's our guy that is going to have, that is going to be remarkable. I want you to pick up with me in Luke chapter 7. So Jesus, after he had finished all these sayings, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And now a centurion had a servant who was sick, and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and to heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with him. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This centurion is remarkable for several different reasons, isn't it? You'll notice that if we read Matthew's account, it would seem as though the centurion himself came to Jesus. But what we have from Luke chapter 7 is that the centurion didn't come, but what you have in verse 2 or verse 3 is he sent elders of the Jews to him. When you send someone on your behalf, it's like you went. And that seems to be the way that the Jews use that term. So anytime that a delegate was sent for you, it was as good as him going himself. And we can see that even used of Jesus in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 17. He preached peace to those who were near and those who were far off. We don't really have any record of Jesus going and preaching to the Gentiles. We have a couple instances, but as a whole, that's not what was going on. But that's how they use that term. And so these elders of the Jews, these older generation, these leaders, if you will, they looked at the centurion. He's different than the other centurions of the world. Those centurions being Roman soldiers who had some authority. Usually over 100 people, but it could be as few as 80. It could be as many as 200. But they were over a relatively small amount, but they had this authority. And what stood out about this guy to those elders was that he loved their nation. He's a foreigner. He is a Roman citizen, but yet he loved Israel. He loved the Jews. And he demonstrated his love for the people that he made sure kept controls by doing what for them? Building them a place to gather for worship. He built them a synagogue. How many other centurions do we know about building synagogues for people to worship God? That's not common. That is unusual. And the guys, the elders say, 
this man is worthy for you to heal. But you know what else stands out about this guy to me? Who does he ask him to be healed? It's not a family member. It's not a loved one, per se. It's his servant. It's someone in his house, and we don't know if it is the most important servant. We don't know if it is the least important servant. We know that it is one of his servants. But this guy, he cares for his servant just like it was a family member. Please heal him. Or heal this servant. And when did Jesus ask, or when did he want this to be done? Notice verse 3. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he then asked. Jesus does a lot of preaching in Capernaum. In fact, one of the cities that gets the hardest rebuke is Capernaum because of their unbelief. He said, if I'd have done the works in Tyre and Sidon that I did in Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida, they would have all repented. But they didn't. But yet this centurion, this Roman, he hears about Jesus and he has people say, heal my servant. But what was remarkable to Jesus about it? It wasn't that he loved the Jews. It wasn't even that he built a synagogue. It was that the man believed that if Jesus just said the words, be well, his servant would be well. He doesn't have to touch him. doesn't have to come. He just has to say the words. And I'm telling you, as Jesus says, I've not seen such faith, not even in Israel. You think about those that followed him closely and those crowds that followed him. Jesus hadn't seen that. Has he seen faith? Absolutely he's seen faith, right? He's seen his own apostles leave their jobs, their families, and come follow him. But that was on his request. This foreigner is saying, just say the word. And he understands that because he understands what it is like to be given authority. I've never really thought about this until I was thinking about this sermon. I want you to go to what, back to what the centurion says when Jesus gets closer to the house. He gets closer, he then sends friends out to Jesus. It's almost like he didn't think Jesus would actually come to begin with on top of it. But now that Jesus is here... You can't come into my house. I'm not worthy to have you in my house. You're too good. But here's what he says down in verse 8. And here's the phrase. For I too am a man set under authority. I say to one go and he goes, one to come and he comes. What he's saying is this. I have authority. But I also have to answer to someone else. And what he's saying of Jesus is you have authority, but you also have to answer to someone else. See, we're all in the same boat here. We've got powers, but they're limited. But what he's saying to Jesus is your power is not limited by time or space. Your power is only limited by what God has given you. And I know that you obey. 
that what He says for you to do, you do. Just like I do. When my, when my head tells me to go, I go. He's in that exact same boat. That's some serious faith that the people that should have believed that. The people that should have been like, you know what, I've seen him do all these other miracles. Why does he even have to be here? Why can't he just say it from a distance? But yet that didn't come to their mind. And so I, I want to ask the question here, as we think practically speaking about myself, do I have any kind of faith that's even remotely close to that? Where, you know, we talked the last time I preached on Sunday night, we talked about the faith of our fathers and their willingness to die for Christ. That wasn't a serious great faith. He wasn't having to give up his life for that. His faith was just an absolute belief and almost something that's impossible. The fact that somebody could do something from such a great distance away that had never been done before. Have you ever asked God to do something that you've never heard done before? What that does and what that illustrates is you've got complete faith in God. That you can do it. I know you can do it. You may choose not to do it. But I firmly believe that you can. And I think when we really want something, we know where to go. And hopefully we've got somebody vouching for us. Remember he's got those elders of the Jews that are there. And they're saying, man, he loves our nation. He built our synagogue. Who might we have saying good things about us to the Father? Jesus the Christ, our mediator. Maybe he's going to the Father, and the Father we know, he knows everything. But he's saying that Wes, he really believes you can do this. Why don't you show it to him? That's faith. I just wonder sometimes how great and how strong my faith really is. I want you to go to the second example that we have. In Matthew, the 22nd chapter. In Matthew, chapter 22, you got two groups of people. I'm assuming you can tell that on the screen there. we got a green group and a blue group. I didn't think about colorblind people, if those colors come out or not. But we've got two groups up there. And the reason why I bring up two groups is because in Matthew, chapter 22... They come trying to test Jesus, specifically to trap him in his speech and in his word. If you're in Matthew chapter 22, in verse 15, they want to know, as you see in verse 15, they plotted how to entangle him in his words. And so they send disciples to him along with the Herodians. So here's our two groups. We've got the Pharisees and we've got the Herodians. The Pharisees are the group over here that's mainly in the blue, the majority of them. And here's what the argument was. Here's what the two camps apparently were. That one camp, the Pharisees, believed that it was wrong to submit to a foreign king. And you've got the Herodians over here 
who believed that it was okay to submit to a foreign king if you were forced to submit to the foreign king. Now you say, what, what is that all about? Hold your finger right there in Matthew chapter 22 and go to Deuteronomy, the 17th chapter. Go back to the Old Testament here in the law of Moses and the second giving of the law. And in Deuteronomy chapter 17, you will find a command about the king that is to be in Israel. You'll notice in Deuteronomy chapter 17, pick up with me in verse 14, if you will. He says, Moses says to the children of Israel from the Lord, he says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and you dwell in it, and then you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You shall not, you may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So what the law said is, if you're going to have a king, Israel, it has to be a Jewish king. Well, in the time of Jesus, the king is not Jewish. He has been placed there by the Romans. And Herod would be his name, would be the king in which they have followed after in his lineage. So the Pharisees, they didn't want to submit to Herod. They didn't want to pay tribute to Rome. And the Herodians were like, it's okay, we have to do this. We have to pay taxes to Rome. So they come with what they seem to believe is an impossible situation. That if he says yes or no, one of the groups is going to be angry at him. He can't be pleasing to both. So that gets us back to Matthew 22. In Matthew chapter 22, they finally ask him the question. Pick back up with me in verse 16. Teacher, we know that you are true. We know that you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Can't be both. We got you right here. But Jesus, aware of their malice, he said to them, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, which is basically a day's wage. And Jesus said to them, uh, whose likeness and inscription is on this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled. And they left him, and they went away. I believe it is in Luke's account that says, They marveled, and they fell silent because of his answer. They were not expecting his answer. What they came, they, he already stood out a little bit to them. And again, they probably didn't believe this, but yet they still knew it was true. They knew that he himself was true. That what he said and what he taught 
was true. He wasn't just teaching to get followers and to make people happy. That's what they're saying, but you don't care about anyone's opinion. You're not swayed by anyone's face. You're just teaching the truth accurately. Therefore, we want to know, is it lawful to pay these taxes or not? But the truth is, they were really caught off guard and his answer was remarkable to them. Because both of them walk away and they can't answer. Because the Pharisees are clearly using the denarius in their daily life. That is how they would have received their payment day by day. That is what they would have bought their goods with day by day. And I think Jesus' point is if you're using somebody's and they tell you you got to pay on that, you pay on that. But it all goes back to what's God's is God's. To the person that gives it to you, you owe it to them. And you owe everything that you have back to God because God gave it to you. And you owe all this stuff that Caesar has given to you to Caesar because Caesar gave it to you. You render these things and they fell silent. So has anyone ever tried to stump you? Stump the, stump the preacher. I'm going to get the preacher. I'm going to get the teacher on this one. Or they just want you to look like a fool in front of somebody. And you answer truthfully and impartially. And their jaw hits the floor. That's what's going on with Jesus. Is that when He gives answers, and kind of like they were saying there in Mark 6, isn't this Joseph's son? And aren't his brother Simon and Joseph? And we know... He's different than the rest of them because where did he get this wisdom from? They're completely silent by him. What can make us stop people dead in their tracks is A, speaking the truth. When you speak the truth with someone and you don't care about their opinion to the point you don't sugarcoat it and you don't soften it, you speak the truth. It's going to Make people marvel. It will be remarkable too. The other instance that we have, and this is really the one that got me thinking about it, about this whole idea of marvel and the third and final one, is in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, we have the crucifixion of Jesus. And there's a lot that goes on. Jesus is put on trial. He goes through the whole night thing. He's arrested at night. He's before the high priest during the night. And finally in the morning, he is delivered to Pilate, the governor. And you would find this in Mark chapter 15, that it was in the morning that this all took place. But in Matthew chapter 27, I want you to go with me to verse 11 as he's standing before Pilate. And Jesus, as he stood before the governor, the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. I'm going to stop right here for a second. Was there anything different about Jesus that kind of stood out here than normal? 
Maybe this idea of, are you the king of the Jews? But the truth is, there would be other people that have gone through that have made that very same claim. If you go to Acts, the fifth chapter, and you would see this in verses 36 through 38, that there were at least two other people in the time of Jesus, in this lifetime, that had rose up, they had a following that was put after them, and then that person died, and their followers all scattered. And Gamaliel's point in Acts chapter 5 is, hey, this Jesus guy that's got these followers, he's been killed. If his thing keeps going and his followers, they stay together, uh, that was done by God, and we're going to be found to oppose God. And we don't stand a chance. So he stands out a little bit. It's kind of like that second slot. He stands out a little bit in that he's calling himself the king of the Jews, and that he's claiming to come and start this kingdom, right? But that's not that different. Secondly, what are they trying to do with Jesus? They're trying to crucify him. How many people have stood before Pilate, the governor, on trial, accusations brought, charges brought, and the person is convicted, and they are crucified? Hundreds, maybe even thousands in Pilate's day. We know at least two others that day. They were convicted that day. So it's not that different that someone was standing before him and he's got the ability to convict them. But I want to go back and I want to read it beginning in verse 11. So Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, As you have said. But when he was accused by the chief priest and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. It's our same word. He marveled at that. The fact this time is that Jesus didn't give an answer. Got Pilate so I'm going to say confused. We've got the Jews coming with accusation after accusation after accusation. He says, don't you hear how many charges and accusations they're bringing against you? And what Jesus was not doing was defending himself. How many people, I wonder, had gone through Pilate's courtroom and as an accusation was brought, they just sat silent and didn't defend Apparently, not many, if any. And that got his attention. Couple that with, his wife comes to him and says, don't have anything to do with this guy. I had a dream about this guy. And couple that with another phrase that's used of him. Remember, it's near the Passover, and they wanted them to come off the cross. So they ordered, Pilate ordered them to break the bones so that they would die sooner. And word came back to Pilate that Jesus was already dead. And what that did, and the text says this, I believe that's in Mark's account, that he marveled that he was already dead. 
See, it was unusual for people to die as soon as Jesus died on the cross. Usually it took a longer period of time. This guy really stood out to him. But what stood out to Pilate about Jesus was he did not defend himself. So I ask you the question to make the application. Has anyone ever brought a false charge against you and you just let it go? We know that the two guys on the Lord's table uh, story this morning that Michael told us, they didn't let it go. Have you ever let that go? See, there's a statement that is there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when Paul is writing to Corinthians about them suing one another. He says to them, man, you've already lost when you go to law with one another. He said, would you not rather be defrauded? You see, that's exactly what's going on here. Is you should be defrauding yourself. You've done nothing wrong. Everything is against you incorrectly. But yet, you take it anyway. And we see Paul doing that at various times. We see Paul in the city of Philippi in Acts chapter 16. He's a Roman citizen. And he has no, as a right, as a Roman citizen, he has the right to a fair trial before punishment. But what they do to him in Acts chapter 16 is they beat him and they throw him into prison. And so word comes to the jailer, hey, set these guys free. And Paul says to him there in Acts 16, no, 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 no. You tell them to come down here and set me free because they have beaten me openly and uncondemned Roman city. What they did is they could have lost their lives. But Paul didn't say a word. But yet... When he is standing before, I believe it is Agrippa, uh, I've got it written down here in Acts chapter 21, there you have it. In Acts chapter 21, Paul is about to be beaten. He's in Jerusalem. And they are about to beat him because there's an uproar going on in the city. And they say, okay, if we beat this guy, then we can get the truth out of him. And Paul says, hold on, I am a Roman citizen. And the guard says, you're a Roman citizen? I had to pay a lot of money to become a Roman citizen. And Paul said, well, I'm a Roman citizen by birth. You see, there are times when it's better to be defrauded, and there are some times when you need to defend yourself. Jesus defended himself sometimes. There are other times where you just got to realize it's better for them to kind of win this I'm going to let this go. And that really stood out to Pilate. That this guy, that he also knew there was no guilt in him, right? How many times does Pilate say, I find no guilt in the man? And maybe that's what perplexes him the most. Is that if he was guilty and he didn't say anything, okay. You're innocent completely. And you don't say anything. I'm going to tell you what. If we knew somebody that acted that way, that we knew they were completely innocent, and we say they got ran all over, and they got walked all over, we'd say that person's crazy. 
we'd say, why did you do that? And the answer is sometimes it's better to be defrauded. There's one other passage I want to close with that I never made really the connection to this until this time. Go to Matthew chapter 5. And the connection is with this whole idea of someone bringing accusations against you in the court of law. And, again, if I'm ever taken to court, I want a lawyer, I want a defender. I'm not smart enough to defend myself. But in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 38, Jesus said, you heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. And verse 40 is the verse that I've never thought about in this life before. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. You see, charges are being brought and they're going to take something from you. And what Jesus is saying to do, you not only let them take that, you let them take more. And when you do that, boy, do you stand out and people have to marvel at what we just did. And the question that we have to ask ourselves, am I a person that stands out so that when other people see my behavior, God, friends, family, they're like, wow, that person really is different. We can all do it. Just a matter of do it. Do, do I do it? Pretty simple for us, right? This evening, if you're ready to become a Christian and you're ready to give your life to Christ, now's a good time. Or if you need the prayers of the congregation, why don't you come now as we stand and as we sing the song?